this podcast. Well, uh, Jordan, aren't you relieved to know that you're not a golem? A golem? Yeah. Like out of Lord of the Rings? No, like a golem, like made out of clay. Oh, okay. Uh, how am I not a golem? <laughs> Is it this the the get, get off the Potter's will territory? Are you about to to uh, mentor me into a new phase of my understanding? No, I just uh, I'm just uh, we've just gone through a uh, a series of of uh, elimination, and you're not a golem. No, that's just one of the great lines from Stranger Than Fiction when Harold Crick is talking to the literary professor and the professor goes through a series of eliminations to find out that Harold is not King Hamlet, he's not Scout Finch, Miss Marple, Frankenstein's monster, or a golem. Aren't you relieved to know you're not a golem? And he answers. What have you got? Have you got this, the uh, screenplay right there in front of yeah, you? Yeah, he answers. You've got the text. You've got to email that to me. He answers. Yes, I'm relieved to know that I'm not a golem. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> so well, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. <laughs> We're going to talk about stranger than fiction today. Um, you caught me off guard. I was going to start with a different tangent, but you got me right well, there, right we, off the bat. We can cut. We can tangent on your tangent. No, no, no. It wouldn't be appropriate. You I'll bring you, it up at some point. Well, you said you had a surprise tangent. I have a public service announcement, and this, this tangent goes something like this. Um, members of the American Medical Association, doctors, all agree, all of them agree, that you should never do anything that cuts into their profit margins. Right. Similar to dentists. Dentists, members of the American Dental Association, they all agree... All dentists agree, 99.99% of dentists agree that you should never do anything or use any product that might keep you away from regular checkups or having to go to the dentist on a regular basis. Well, that's a good segue because Harold Crick would brush his teeth 78 with 78 strokes, brushes every morning. Precision. He was a precision brusher. He would count. Yeah, but what we do want to talk about Stranger Than Fiction, we mentioned it, I think, one or two weeks ago, and how we wanted to kind of take a deeper dive into this film, and I, I recently watched it again, and it is a really, a really good movie. It's really good, and I, I think they chickened out. <clears throat> how well, so? Well, one of the main... Okay, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. Massive spoiler alert... How old is Stranger Than Fiction? Came out in 2006. Okay, so you should have watched this by now. If you haven't already watched it by now, I'm going to ruin the ending by telling you the following bit of information. Stranger Than Fiction is a comedy, not a tragedy. Fair enough. Literary critics should know what that means. Would you like to enlighten us on that? or? Well, the difference between a tragedy in a comedy mm-hmm. sometimes there's only uh sometimes the difference is really subtle um and it usually has to do with whether or not the main character dies that is the way i would look at it and that's the way that uh harold looks at it in the movie right harold's the protagonist yeah played by will farrell 
he's a uh, he's a very structured person. Let's put it that way. Very very logical, linear thinking, structured, anal retentive. He's an IRS agent. He's a proto perfect IRS agent, right? He is. He's exactly the stereotype of what you would think a IRS agent would be. He's he can do complex math off the top of his head. He has no social life. He has no friends outside of work. He's he's boring. His house is boring. It has the most minimal amount of furniture. You know, he owns one plate, one bowl, two sets of forks. You know, he's he goes to work and he comes home and he, he goes to bed at the exact same time every night. He gets up at the exact same time. His life is very rigid. It is, uh, you know, kind of, it's a boring, meaningless life. And yet he's, I wouldn't say he's necessarily a boring person. It's just his, that's his existence, his job and his numbers. You know, he counts stairs when he walks up. He's kind of, they almost paint him, they almost make him um sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for kind of rain man esque in his ability to to count things and to do math but he's not he's not rain man but he's, he's not he's rain a regular man. guy he's yeah. just a he's just one of those people that you would never really talk to i mean he has friends at the irs office and you they're wanna, all very quirky i have to i have to mention a little Side note with his friends at the office. This thing, uh, so two of his coworkers I recognized. Did you recognize two of his coworkers? They play a small role. And I recognized them immediately as the Sonic drive in guys who made it. Oh, they made are, it, huh? Kind of the, one, the one guy that he goes to stay with? No, no, that's, no. that's, uh, that's Buster from, uh, from Arrested Development. Okay, hold on a second. I'm pulling up IMDb here. Uh, it's got a pretty good it. cast. Um, but these two... two uh, that guy's name's Peter Gross. Gross. The two guys that are... You, you remember the Sonic drive-in commercials where the, the two guys would oh, sit yeah, yeah. in their car? Yeah, they, they're both in this movie, and they kind of play the same part. They're just co-workers with a couple of speaking parts. And that struck me as weird that they would both be in it. So I did a little bit of homework, and it turns out these guys are a comedy, kind of a comedy duo, or were, and uh, and uh, have yeah. worked. Yeah, know, one of these guys is Peter Gross, G-R-O-S-Z. How do you say that? Where is our pronunciation expert when we need him, PhD? I don't know. I have to Bobby look at Flood. it. G-R-O-S-Z. I thought that was the guy that whose house he stayed at. No, no, he stays at um, another coworker's uh, house. Uh, Dave, I think Dave is his. He stayed yeah, at and Dave's that's played house. Played by um, Tony Hale. Yeah, Dave's the one that wants to go to space camp. Okay, you're right. They kind of yeah, because the two guys, the two guys are the ones that always ask him the math question, right? Yeah. When he walks past him and he yeah. says. They try to get him to do complex multiplication problems. Right. And anyway, I just thought it was funny. Those two guys at the time probably, probably, 
I don't know if those Sonic commercials were in full force yet, but I just thought, found that kind of funny. And and in their careers, they're, they've done a lot of behind the scenes stuff with writing for, you know, these types of comedy shows and variety shows. Do we still have variety shows? We uh, have non-variety shows. What's the opposite of variety? Continuity. We have continuity programming. <laughs> okay. We have stale regurgitation. Well, these guys work for those shows, and and they they they're they, <laughs> these guys are actually kind of funny. No, they they are funny, and and Sonic they they had a long run with Sonic, and then Sonic canceled them in 2020, and then I think they're realizing they need to bring them back. It's been a really successful ad campaign for the drive-in with bad food but decent milkshakes. How much do the milkshakes cost? I, I don't know. I haven't been for a while. I need to know. Probably less than $6.48 for a miniature. But I, I don't know I because so. the price of everything is going up rapidly. Oh, that's another topic. Inflation versus deflation. But seriously, don't do anything that members of the American Medical Association would frown upon because that cuts into their profit margins. And I want to make that clear. When you see those ads on TV, you know, 97% of members of the AMA approve, that means it will get you into their offices more often. Just want to bring, just want to bring that. For some reason, that's on my mind. Well, that's fair. That's fair. And if you're a doctor or a dentist and you take exception, Comment. let us know. <laughs> let us know on the website, myinvirus.show. Yeah, go ahead and comment. Uh, over the weekend, I was at my mother-in-law's place and some family members, uh, one, of my, one of my family members, one of the most illustrious of them, came up to me and he said, um, you know, I want to just point out that in thus and such an episode, I can't remember it was, which one it was, he remembered, but I, he said, just wanted to point out that you said that both Crab and Goyle died in the fiend fire in the room of requirement. And that's not true. Only one of them died. I can't remember whether it was Crab or Goyle now. But this guy knows his Harry Potter. And I just want to give a shout out. Well, our, our, our male version of Hermione here. <laughs> Think of a nickname for you in a minute. Uh, yeah. Thank you for, for pointing out the inconsistencies in the podcast, and please comment on the website so that we can get a little bit of discussion going. I hope we have an audience that's, that's out there. It'd be great if you guys started talking to each other on the website, or I don't know, maybe you talk behind our backs in person. Maybe, do you like it when people talk behind your back? Maybe we don't want them talking. I don't know. Because if, if like they start talking not. behind our backs... I don't know how if I, will we, if I how like will we not, know how do I know how will we know what they're saying whether it's right. like praising us or not I'm sure it'll be praising you us. think so I mean, praise what else could there okay. be okay <laughs> well okay Strang back to stranger than fiction Strangers, great great show strangers stranger than fiction is a story about a man named Harold Crick and his wristwatch Harold Crick was a man of infinite numbers endless calculations and remarkably few words and his wristwatch said even less. Those are the opening narration. That's the opening narration for the, for the film. And the narrator, of course, plays a vital, important role in this movie. 
as later on in the film, Harold Crick starts to hear the narrator. He starts to hear the narrator as if it's speaking out loud. And it's so, it's so apparent that he starts asking people around him, did you hear that? Did you hear that voice? That voice said, Harold, it's a Wednesday. Oh, don't worry, Harold. It is a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. He has some funny interactions with you know strangers on, uh, on the bus and at work and things. And he realizes that the he realizes that this voice that he's hearing is narrating his life, and that things that this female voice says are things that he's he's doing. It's not predicting things. It's not it's not a voice in his head telling him to do things. It's just a narrator. And he he kind of deals with it until the narrator says. Little did he know. Little did he know that all of these things would lead to his imminent death. Right. That that's the inflection point in the movie. And the and the buildup is great because this is this is a great show. I highly recommend having a look at it if you like it. Uh, we're going to spoil it for you. It is a comedy. I think we already spoiled that. Right. It is a comedy, which is kind of at towards the end of it. You kind of wonder where they're going to go with it, but I think. Had they not made it a comedy, it could have been even more powerful. Well, that's that's the big that's the crux, right? That's the big question that the movie asks. Because it is a comedy. It could have been a tragic comedy. Which is a quasi comedy. It almost is. And 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 again, spoiler, they lead you to believe it is until the very last minute. It could have been very powerful. And, and it's funny because the, uh, both the author and the professor of literature lament that. Okay, we, I, I'm skipping ahead. I, I'm skipping ahead. Let's lay I've a little gotta, more groundwork I gotta, and then we'll okay, get there. So, so right before we get to the little did he know episode, it's great because they do these graphics and show how incredibly analytical Harold is in his life and how he operates and how structured his life is. And they just set the whole thing up and he, start, he starts getting narrated. And it's kind of like... It's, it's not, the great thing about this is it's similar to the Truman Show, but different. He realizes he's the actor in a piece of literature. It's not a movie, it's a book, right? But that's significant. He has an awakening moment. And then he seeks out, because he doesn't understand it, he, he, you know, he, at first he's kind of like, okay, this is crazy. But it gets serious when he gets to the point where the narrator finally says, little did he know these events would lead to his imminent death. Right. And he's, he questions the nature of his reality and goes, what? You know, I don't really want to die. Right. He's, and, he's at the bus stop and he's yelling and his coworkers are all kind of... See, his coworkers, it seems to be that he's kind of well-liked at work, but Again, kind of eccentric. He's not going to go out for drinks with any of these guys after work. But they're all sitting at that bus stop after work, and he he hears the imminent death. And he says, what? What? Why? Why? No, I don't want... He's yelling up into the sky, I don't want to die. And the coworkers are all kind of looking around. And then his, his, his watch goes berserk. And the watch plays an interesting role in this movie and i don't know maybe maybe it's worth uh spending some time on the watch while i'm scrolling through the script here where are you getting the script i emailed you the link okay the one that i'm using there's a several on the 
this is like a di- it's like whether we're using the King James Bible or the Good News Bible here, we got to get on the same script because we don't want to have a different translation of this. Harold Her- Harold lives a lonely life. Like he has no he has no ambition, right? Other than to be an IRS auditor. Right. And it, he kind of he gets a little bit of a call to adventure when he starts to hear the narrator, but he really gets the call to adventure when he is informed of his imminent demise. Right. The narrator says, Thus Harold's watch thrust him into the immitigable path of fate. Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. And that little sim that 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 innocuous act was uh, his watch went dead. His watch kind of is this semi-sentient personality. It's a character in the film. And while he's at the bus stop, the the watch fritzes out on him. It goes out. And he reboots it kind of and says, does anybody have the time? And a stranger says, "Uh, yeah, I got uh, 618. So he sets his watch to 618. And thus, Which is not the correct time. Thus, Harold's watch thrust him into the immitigable path of fate because yeah. of, of setting the watch a couple minutes. Was it early? Fast? I can't remember whether. I think it was. Um, I think he said it fast because he shows up to the bus. He's, in, t- he's in time to perform the action. That, yeah, he's chronically that the, late for the bus, just barely catching it. And this particular day, yeah. he was. I wouldn't say he's chronically late. I would say he's chronically on he's time. He's exactly on time. He, he's chronically efficient. But occasionally it results like he's, in him. He's, he plays... What's funny is Will Ferrell in real life is the exact opposite temperament type of the type he's playing. He, he's not a legalist personality type. He is a very imaginative... Uh, right. Yeah, everybody knows. Will Ferrell is just way out there. When this... This film, this was kind of like Truman Show was for Jim Carrey. This was a chance for Will Ferrell to play something different than a buffoon. And and I remember people kind of saying the same types of things like, oh, he can't, Will Ferrell can't pull off a dramatic, serious, straight role. Now, there's a lot of humor in this film, but it's it's not so slapstick and over the top as some of his other stuff. So it was a chance for him to play something completely different than his normal. And I think he did a really good job. I think it's a really well I agree. directed film. The cast is great. So the cast we've got Will Ferrell. Then we've got, is it uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal? Maggie Gyllenhaal is his love interest. Dustin Hoffman's the literary professor. And he's excellent. I mean, the way they paint this literary professor, he's the mentor, the Obi-Wan. It's, he's it's hilarious. The, it's, yeah. the, it's in the details too. Like yeah. he, he's a volunteer lifeguard at the at the pool. Uh, he's yeah. He's just he's just like uh, the hip, like the. He's kind of new agey. Kind of, he's kind of like the the cool literature professor everybody wants to get on campus. The way that see, uh, it's interesting because in the hero's journey. You've got a situation here where Will, Ferrell, Will Ferrell's character, Harold, takes up the call to action. He takes it up. He doesn't refuse it. He takes it up. He kind of refuses it early on when you, if, if you consider the call to action being when he starts to hear the narrator. 
But once, once he gets the little did he know this would lead to his imminent death, he takes up the call to action. He starts to search. He starts to study. Yeah, he and goes, he seeks out. He goes first to a traditional like, psychiatrist. Yeah. And she's not too much help. She says, you're schizophrenic. He's like, but let's say I'm not. <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. She's like, I don't know. Go find someone that knows about books right. and so stories. He, he listens to the advice from his traditional, from the traditional people that are like, you know, you need to go do your research. Go find somebody that actually knows something about this. So he seeks out a professor of literature at the local college who is the Dustin Hoffman character. And the Dustin Hoffman character is kind of nice. He talks to him. He's, interest, he's somewhat interested, but then he just brushes him off. And as Will Ferrell is walk, or Harold is walking out the door, he says to the professor, but she said, how, how did he, what, do you have the quote on hand? He's, he repeats the line from the narrator. Um, yeah. But, you know, he says, he says, all I, all I can remember, he, he, I think he's asked something like, what does she say? And he's like, I don't know, he's just narrating my life. But what I really remember is, little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. And Professor, um, what's his name? It's Jules... Uh, can't remember his last name now, but the Dustin Hoffman character. He says, he, say, he says, what? Little did he know that this, and Dustin Hoffman stops him and says, did you say little did he know? Yes. I've written papers on little did he know. I used to teach a class on little did he know. I mean, I once gave an entire seminar on little did he know. Son of a blank, Harold. Yeah. Little did he know means there's something he doesn't know. There's something you don't know. <laughs> this isn't all in your head. <laughs> yeah. That means there's something you don't know. Did you know that? I want you to come back Friday. Okay. Yeah. So, so in a sense, that's Dustin Hoffman also takes up the the call to adventure and realizes that there's something more here. Right. And, and it's funny because Harold goes, "No, it's imminent." And the guys and Hoffman says, "You could be dead by Friday." Yeah. C- <laughs> come back, back tomorrow, tomorrow at nine forty-five. <laughs> but and and I think in, in some ways, the professor character he's he's kind of lives a. I wouldn't, maybe not boring, but kind of a routine life. And he, he seems like it's obvious that his, his work at the university is sort of on autopilot and he's looking for something interesting and this kind of falls in his lap, but his name is Jules Hilbert. The beauty in his character is in the details. Like he's very neurotic with about always having coffee and he's recycling coffee and he's always eating something. One little detail I love is he's at the pool. Yeah, he's the volunteer lifeguard. He's at the pool doing his shift, and he's reading a novel that's wrapped in plastic. So <laughs> in case it gets splashed on. You know, yeah. it's a paperback novel. You know, like, it's not like it's some priceless heirloom book. And, and he's got it wrapped in yeah. plastic, which I don't know how you turn the pages. But Well, then you've got the narrator, the the author who's writing the book, and her her name is... Karen Eiffel, played by Emma Thompson, and she's also very neurotic. She's she's always she's the the movie always shows her testing out ways to kill off Harold. Right. Yeah. She's doing research, so she's so she's standing on the top of a building and then she falls off, or she's uh, watching cars on a bridge, imagining them careening off into the water. Yeah. She goes to a hospital, and there's a someone gets wheeled in on a on a gurney that's been shot, and she says, you know, none of these people are going to die. These are just injured people. And right. she grabs a, a hospital employee and says, where are all the dying people? Where am I? Where are the people that I can that are, aren't going to make it? And, and the 
nurse kind of says, are you suffering from something? And, <laughs> and she goes, just writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the characters in this they are really good. Are, are really, really fun characters. They're over the top. They're eccentric. And uh, they they really create this this uh, this compelling little little narrative world. And then there's uh, the love interest, and that's played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and she's this she's this uh, bake bakery owner, and she's tattooed and spontaneous, and she's completely 180 degrees opposite of of Harold Crick, and they meet because he has to go audit. He has to audit her because she deliberately doesn't pay taxes because she... She didn't want to pay for defense and uh, what else? Yeah, like... Some uh, other portion of the federal... Wars yeah, or something there was something like she didn't want to pay for in the federal government's agenda. And she... Her bakery, um, you know, she has kind of a clientele that's a little offbeat, uh, including some, it appears, like some homeless people that she gives food away to for free and... There's this uh, there's this moment in the film, jumping ahead a little bit, where, so of course they they you know have an unlikely romance, right? And there's this moment in the film where they wake up together, and it's the morning of Harold Crick's last day on Earth. He's he's, he's sensing his imminent <clears throat> demise. Well, he's read the story at this. Point. Oh, that's right, that's right. He read the story. So okay, we got to back up again. Well, uh, let me let me well, just. I've got that right in front of me. Let me tell you, he, this is hilarious because it illustrates uh, a lot about Harold Crick, the the person. And they're in bed, and he says, uh, "She says, um, I have something to tell you." Oh, you do? I do. Is it a secret? Sort of. Tell me. I adore you. I adore you too. That's it. No, I have to tell you this. I just want this is Harold now. I want you to listen carefully. Remember, everybody knows that he's facing this demo- and death. He, and he, he knows. He knows it. So you're thinking he's gonna. Yeah, he says. He says, "I want you profound. to listen. I want you to listen carefully." Okay. You can deduct the value of all the food you give away as a charitable charitable contribution. <laughs> Harold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. In fact, it amounts to more than what you're currently withholding, and it doesn't break any tax laws. Harold, the point was to break the tax laws. <laughs> It's hilarious. Yeah, you think he's going to give it some profound. He says, uh, "I want to make the, I want to make the world a better place too, Anna, and I think that means keeping you out of jail." Right. <laughs> it's hilarious. Anna Pascal, that's her name, and yeah, she's tattooed, and she's this former Harvard law student who drops out to become a bakatrice. And and they keep having these coincidental run-ins after the initial audit. You know, they meet on the bus or and he starts going out of his way to to go to the bakery. And at one point he brings her flowers, but they're just wrapped bulbs in paper. No, they're not bulbs. They're different types of baking flour. Oh, that's what it was. F-L-O-U-R. That went right over my head (laughs) because they're wrapped up. And I was like, you know, this guy's so. No, it's cute. Okay, I get it. It makes more sense now why she was more touched by it. So, okay, I get it. That that is uh, that, that is good. Yeah, he says wheat flour, and then there's rice flour, and then there's white flour. I don't know how many types of flours there are, but they had like sixteen different. Types. Yeah, and she asks him because he, he they're color coded somehow with the tape on them. Yeah, I, that went right right over my head. Well, let's get to 
the crux of the film. Let's get to the real meaning of this this movie, which I think comes down to two scenes. Um, I agree. And, Let's see if they're the same scenes. And these are after... So Harold's with the professor, and the professor usually has like a a literary talk show, not literary, but a talk show with where they interview authors on this little teeny TV in his office. You know, think of like a Good Morning America or something when they have authors on. And, mm-hmm. and the professor, they've decided that, that so the, the professor's been doing research and he's narrowed it down to all these tragic writers, these writers of tragedies, contemporary, still living authors. He's narrowed it down to like seven or eight. But then Harold comes to the office and says, I'm not in a tragedy because that was the initial, uh, uh, that was the initial idea was professor. The professor said, we got to figure out if you're in a comedy or a tragedy. And he says, basically the difference is those in the comedy get the girl, those in the tragedy die. And he comes back and he says, I'm in a comedy. I'm not in a tragedy because Anna Pascal is falling in love with me. And the professor's like, well, that just undoes everything I've been working on. And they're getting ready to kind of go their separate ways. He's like, I have this list for you of authors, but obviously you don't need it anymore because you're in a comedy. And Professor Herbert, was it Herbert? Hilbert. Hilbert says. Herbert is a dirty word around here. (laughs) Professor Hilbert says, Harold, if you ever hear the voice again, please let me know. I'm interested to know. And Harold says, yes, I will. And then right then you hear the voice, but it's not the narrator. It's, it's not the narrator. It's on the television. television. Yeah. You see the uh, author is on this, this program, this TV program. And Harold says, that's her. That's the voice. And, and professor says, no, 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 no. That's, that's his famous author. That's her his name famous is author. Uh, and Eiffel. That's Karen Eiffel. And that interview is a decade old. She hasn't written anything in 10 years. No one knows where she is. And he's like, no, that's the voice. That's the voice. I need to find her. And he bolts out of the office. Well, he does find her. He 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 uses his uh, resources at the IRS to find her. He and he, there's this great scene where she's at the typewriter typing, and she writes, and the phone rang, and her phone rings. <laughs> Because she doesn't know at this point that her character that she's writing is real, right? She's she's unaware. They're they're both unaware of each other until this point where Harold kind of discovers it first, and then she writes again, and the phone rang again, and her phone rings, mm-hmm. and she's starting to freak out a little mm-hmm. bit, and so to test it, she writes, "The phone rang a third time," <laughs> and her phone rings. She runs and picks it up, and Harold on the other end. Says, I'm Harold Crick. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. I'm your character. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because when he's talking to Hilbert and he recognizes the voice, he says, uh, Professor Hilbert, I know that voice. Crap. What's wrong? Well, first of all, she wasn't on my list. This is Hilbert. He's mad because he didn't guess right. the, the author. I figured you would have mentioned the accent, you know, because she's got a British accent. Right. And he goes, well, anyway... She kills people. What? In every book, she... The books are all about... They die. She kills them. Who? The heroes. 
<laughs> right. So she she never has a happy ending. Well, and so then Hil- Hilbert knows that this is uh, this, this is, a, is a tragedy. This is, yeah, this is a tragedy. She's untraceable. Believe me, I used to teach a class on her. I've written her letters. I mean, she's a hermit. She's a recluse. <laughs> so he uses his uh, considerable the the resources of the most powerful government in the history of the world to track down this woman via the IRS and goes and pleads for his life, and she gives him the script and shows him why well, it ends the way it ends. The whole, up to this point, the whole movie, Karen, the author has struggled with this writer's block. She can't figure out how to kill Harold Crick. Right now. What, what were the two scenes you thought were the most significant when well, he discovers who the narrator is? Because I feel like the most significant scene. No, to, I, okay. Well, the two the two scenes I'm thinking of when it really when they really kind of cut cut to the chase is the scene where uh, the scene where Harold meets again with Professor, Professor Hilbert, and they have the conversation about this is after that, he's read the book, right? It's after I think it's after cause after at, after they both he, read he, the he. He tells the professor to read the book first. And I think this was before Harold read the ending or the whole book. No, it's before Harold's read it at all because he gets on the bus and all he does is reads the yeah. book after he meets with Hilbert. Yeah, that's the, most, that's the first most significant scene, I think, is when he's meeting with the professor. The professor's read the book and he says, you have to die. And he's like, why? And he says, and he kind of comes to terms with it. He says, I think this is the professor. He, he's asking Harold, he says, what's your favorite word? Integer. Good. <laughs> good, good. Do you aspire to anything? No. Conquer Russia? Win a whistling contest? No. Harold, you must have some ambition. I don't think so. Some underlying dream. Think. Well, I've always wanted my life to be more musical. Like West Side Story? No. Like what? Well, I've always wanted to learn to play the guitar. Okay. The last thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Okay, and then it goes on. But he he has in that meeting, they have this conversation where it's, yeah, you're gonna have to die. But he says everybody's gonna die, but all of the deaths that you face in your life, none of them would be this poetic. See, I think you're mixing up two scenes. I am, I am, I am. Okay, because there's the one where they where he asks him about playing the guitar. I, the reason I like that second scene, because uh, th- there's the two scenes I think are most significant are the the one right after Hilbert reads it, and before Harold reads it, where right. he he says you have to die. And that's where they're walking along campus, right? No, they're in the office. All right. Well, anyway, this is. Maybe we should do like mystery science theater and comment <laughs> on the movie as it goes. But this <laughs> this this scene that I was reading from kind of touches on the theme though. The, the, this is the theme of the movie right here. The ultimate meaning to which all stories refer has two faces. The continuity of life, the inev- the inevitability of death. This is where he's describing a, a tragedy. Tragedy you comedy. die, comedy you get hitched. And th- and that's the that's that's the the crux of the whole film: the continuity of life, the inevitability yeah. of death. 
So he, yeah. The, okay, so, but, but, so there's the scene where, where, where the professor's read the book and says, "You've you have to die." He's saying, "Can't she change it? Can't I avoid it?" And he's saying, "You're still going to end up dying, one way or another. We're all going to die. Right? No death would be this meaningful and this poetic." And Harold's kind of. That's the first most important scene, right. in my opinion, because he says, "He says, I'm sorry." You have to die. And the what? second, the second scene, just so we can get that out of the way, we don't have to talk about it yet. For me, was the meeting between the author and the exactly professor, where they when she explains why why she changed the ending. Yeah, because the professor reads the book and says, "This is her masterpiece." Her masterpiece. And he's it's explaining poss- that to it's Harold. possibly the most important novel in her already stunning career, and it's absolutely no good unless you die at the end. I've been over it and over it again. Again and again. And I know it's hard to hear. I know this is hard for you to hear. You're asking me to knowingly face my death? My death? Yes. See, that, that right there is so... It's more poetic than this poetic book. They build this book the, up as if the book is significant, but it's the, it's the interchange. It's the dialogue between Hilbert and Crick. Is it Harold Crick? Yeah. It's between Harold and Ju. Is it Jules? I, I got to get their names straight because Jules Hilbert, Jules and H- Pro- the Professor Jules Hilbert and Harold Crick. This conversation right here is amazing. He says it's absolutely no good unless you die at the end. Whose story was absolutely no good unless he gave up his life at the end? Right. Okay, we don't even need to answer that question. But it's right. it, there. There's one main story, but there are many other sub stories. Like for example, well, Joseph look, Joseph Smith. It was absolutely no good unless he gave up his life at the end. And it's not just giving up your Abinadi. life. There's a lot of stories where Peter, the the hero, dies. But there's not as many Braveheart, and, and they tend to be the great stories where the hero knowingly faces his death. And does so willingly. They go like a lamb to the slaughter, but they're calm as a summer's morn. Mm-hmm. And and that's what Harold... So the next portion of the film, he has to come to terms with that. And so that's when he decides to read the book and to figure out and to learn how he dies. Right. So can and we, this can, is, can we this, take a break By the here? way, this book is unpublished at this point. It's a manuscript. And in fact, the ending is written in pencil on legal pad. And it's like attached to the printed. Yeah, typed she gives manuscript. him the, she gives him the outline of how she wants the thing to end. Right, and then she. Uh, no, it's an actually it's actually written out. Oh, she wrote it down. Remember, she he's like, wait, you've already written it. She's like, oh, it was an outline, an outline. Oh, it was, it was untyped. It's untyped. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Somehow the act of typing it makes it so solidified it. So it was still sort of up in the air, which is interesting because, um. There's a line from a. I brought this up with some friends before, but there's a great series of children's books that I really like by a guy named Lloyd Alexander called The Chronicles of mm-hmm. Prydain. Have you read those? I have. Yeah, I love them. There's a there's a quote from the last book where Taran is interrogating his mentor Dalbin, the great enchanter, mm-hmm. about why things went the way they went, and um, he is. Um, asking him, well, what if this had happened? Well, what if that had happened? And he says, if, if, a thousand times if, if you hadn't done this, if you hadn't done that, if you'd gotten killed, if you hadn't faced the Dark Lord or whatever, you know, all of these ifs. But he, he goes on to say that 
it's the deeds that make a man and not his destiny. It's, it's the deeds of a man and not, how does that quote go? I've got to find that because that's a really good, a really good quote. While you're looking for that, I'm going to read from this script. Um, this is Harold and Jules talking, and I think it's relevant to where you're going. So uh, the professor says to Harold, you, you were right. This narrator might very well kill you. So I humbly suggest that you just forget all this and go live your life. Go live my life. I am living my life. I'd like to continue to live my life. I know, of course. I mean all of it, however long you have left. You know, I mean, Howard, oh, that was another little quirk. He keeps calling him Howard when his name's actually oh, it's Harold. Harold. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Howard, you could use it to have an adventure, you know, invent something or just finish reading Crime and Punishment. Hell, Harold. And then he gets it right. Hell, Harold, you could just eat nothing but pancakes if you wanted. What's wrong with you? Hey, I don't want to eat nothing but pancakes. I want to live. Who in their right mind, <laughs> who in their right mind makes a choice between pancakes and living? Chooses pancakes. Harold, if you'd pause to think, I'd believe you'd realize that the answer's in inextricably contingent upon the type of life being led and, of course, the quality of the pancakes. <laughs> you don't understand what I'm saying. Yes, I do. But you have to understand that this isn't a philosophy or a literary theory or a story to me. It's my life. And then Harold or uh, Jules says, absolutely. So just go make it the one you've always wanted. And I think that's a really key moment because at this point, Harold's life isn't, it's not bad, but there's nothing to it. There's no meaning to it. He's an automaton that performs an unpleasant job and is surrounded by kind of automatons who also perform an unpleasant job it's like he has a dialogue at one point with the professor and he's like nobody could possibly hate you and he says i'm an ir, IR i'm an irs agent everybody hates me <laughs> but he's a pleasant guy and but he performs this terrible task this and his whole life is meaningless he's never done anything interesting and so it is contingent upon the quality of the pancakes versus the quality of the life. Right. And the and what I was getting at, and I got that quote way wrong. Here, This is a great quote because we're talking about prophecy. We're talking about the narrator. We're talking about destiny here. And the, the great enchanter in The High King says to Taran, the hero, he says, it's the deeds of a man, not the words of a prophecy that shape his destiny. Right. And that's what that that's the whole point. Harold has a decision to make. He part part of the story is about him avoiding anything that would cause his imminent death. Right? Do you remember him sitting in his apartment all day? Like uh, the professor Hilbert tells him, "Don't do anything." Yeah, make the plot come make, to you. Make the plot come to you. So he sits down. And he watches the. Uh, nature channel channel all day and all it is is uh, animals getting eaten yeah, animals getting killed <laughs> animals getting killed horrifically the narrator saying yeah. things like don't go into the pond if you don't want to get eaten you know. <laughs> and so he's sitting there watching TV all day he won't even get up and go to the bathroom he won't answer his phone yeah, he pees into a, a jar that yeah. he holds <laughs> he puts it under the table well anyway the, the, the fate is so out to get him that ultimately there is a wrecking crew outside with a big 
traco with a claw on it that mm-hmm. that takes a bite out of his living room and yeah. and he has to move out of his apartment because his his apartment is exposed to the open air because he's been sitting there waiting for the plot to come to him right. this is sort of what like in yeah there a, was a, a mix-up with an address and so they started to demolish the wrong building right this is this is sort of a uh, an, an illustration of joseph campbell's refusal to take the call to adventure right he's refused the call in a way and therefore something happens that brings him back into the story. And there, by the way, I'm going to post a few links to some diagrams that I've seen people make online of the hero's journey that I thought were really good. There are, there are people attribute to Campbell, I think 17 different elements and some people have, you know, it's not, it's not hard and fast, but the idea is that in any hero's journey, there are certain things that occur and Campbell identifies them in uh, myth throughout the throughout the world in his studies and in any he, he discusses them at length in his book the hero with a thousand faces but the hero's journey is really interesting because we can live the life of Harold where we don't ever we don't ever go outside of our little world or we can we can take up the call to adventure and go through a process of metamorphosis which ultimately is supposed to result in something called apotheosis, which means divinization or becoming godly, or death or resurrection is sometimes the way it's, it's termed in some of these diagrams. But along the way, you make sacrifice, you go through trials, you meet with the goddess, go through potentially hieros gamos, which is the sacred union, you fight the antagonist, you you go into a to sort of a heavenly or otherworldly realm or uh, this is depicted differently in different types of stories right you were telling me earlier that m- most often it's depicted as the hero leaving their hometown yeah often you know and there's lots of uh, examples i mean luke leaving tatooine or mm-hmm. harry potter leaving you know the the closet yeah being Le- leaving the dursley's house um there's, there's, you know, Frodo. Little did he know that Bilbo. would result in the death of either Crab or Goyle right. in book seven, but I could not actually remember that. The other mistake we made, which my uh, very astute relative pointed out, was that in Robin Hood, the animated Robin Hood, uh-huh. I said that Prince John was depicted as a snake. That is not accurate. Prince John is depicted as a kind of a cowardly lion or a cougar, a mountain I think, lion. I thought we corrected that on the fly. Did we correct it on the fly? Anyway, Sir Hiss is the snake. I'll let, let, me yeah. cor- let me just correct that again for the record, just to be 100% <laughs> transparent here. And then Richard, King Richard, is, He's the, the, great lion. is the lion. You see him at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. So the anyway, the, the hero's journey here, it, it, the Stranger Than Fiction is a great hero's journey. It it's is. a great journey because he he searches. He he really searches and he changes, and he's he becomes something greater than what he was. Something desirable, right? Something beautiful, and that's what the the author, the 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 divine, the divinity here, the author played by Emma Thompson. Uh, her name is Karen Eiffel in the in the book or in the movie. <laughs> she has 
his destiny changes, right? Right. And he, what's interesting though, is his, the change that takes place isn't, the change that takes place in his life isn't something that the author writes. So his, his fate is not determined by this omniscient voice, this invisible hand. She doesn't have him, you know, a, a lot of these changes in his life aren't narrated. Right. He, she narrates some of the, the more mundane things, like when he's trying to audit Anna. Right. The Maggie Gyllenhaal character, the, the baker. But when he starts going off script, so to right. speak. She narrates him checking her out and stuff like that. Right. But he, You were looking at me. I assure you, if I was, it was only as a representative of the U.S. government. <laughs> 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 yeah, he's very awkward very funny. in the beginning. Yeah, but, but, he, but he, 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 he changes, and she doesn't narrate the, the beautiful parts of his change, his, of his metamorphosis. Right. He takes time off work. He goes to movies. He learns, you know, he goes and buys a guitar. He plays the guitar. He learns to play the guitar. He starts kind of living more spontaneously and doing things that he's always wanted to do, but never did because his regimented existence wouldn't allow for it. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we all kind of fall into that trap where we all have these things that, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go and do this, this, or this? Well, that's what makes this whole thing so beautiful is we all know deep down inside we're not really doing what we want. And it's not about doing what you want every time. It's, sometimes it's about doing what your destiny is or what you think you're, you're destined to do or what your mission here is. But we're, we, we struggle between these poles of doing what, what the world wants us to do, what the safe thing is, the thing that will enhance our retirement is. Right. That's, that's where we vacillate, I think. It goes back to Braveheart, right? Every, every man dies, but not every man really lives. And, and what we've brought that up repeatedly. That's the whole point of this movie, Stranger Than Fiction, is that every man dies, but not every man really lives. Right, and that's the, the message is like, we, we all know at some point we'll die. Everybody dies. That's not a, that's not a spoiler alert. Right. But we don't know. We don't have the advantage of Harold in knowing when and, and in the manner of our He finds demise. it out, and then he performs it to perfection. Right. And so I guess, should we get into that then? Well, let, let's just stop here and talk a little bit more about the hero's journey okay. or just about life in general. Because look, society functions well when people are not spontaneous. And I'm not saying you just have to go out and be spontaneous. The issue with spontaneity is you need to be appropriately, contextually, appropriately spontaneous. You need... We, we have forces of light and dark pulling at us from beyond the veil that are all trying to get us to be, to, to do things that are different than what our conscious traditional mindset is telling us to do, right? So I'm not saying like, like you, you, how many of you have been standing at the edge of a precipice, a cliff, you know, whether you're cliff jumping or whether you're at the Grand Canyon or something and the voice says, jump. Have you been? Have you ever been in that situation where it's like you could jump? Only, or, or, only when I bungee jumped. Okay, 
but like I, I've, I've been standing there, and it's like, what if you just jumped? Yeah, I you think, know, it's I think, an, it's not not so much a voice, but an impulse, right? I think everybody who stands on the edge thinks, what if it, I jump? It goes through their mind, like, yeah, what would it be like to jump? And, and that's addressed in the movie. With yeah, it is. The she, author saying, just thinking about what it'd be like to jump off a building. Everybody thinks about what it's like to jump off a building, and the assistant Queen Latifah uh-huh. character says. Nobody, nobody does that. Only you do that. I've never thought about what it's like to jump off a building. Well, and the the assistant character is interesting because she's kind of like the pull you back to reality, right? She's kind of like Harold Crick in the sense that at one point she rattles off her credentials. You know, I've never missed a deadline. My authors always get their jobs done, and she uses you know she uses all these traditional prompts. She has. You know, cards laid out. She's there. Structure. The, the publishing house has sent her to help Emma Thompson. Uh, Karen we le- we Eiffel learn that get this author past, get past her writer's This author's block. been trying to write this book, which she titles "Death and Taxes" for ten years. And that's a great title. It is because that's you know that's the thing you can't avoid. But Anna Pascal, Maggie Gyllenhaal, she avoids the taxes, right? And that leads to her love interest you know, the love of her life, her soulmate or whatever, coming out of his shell and, and a great, beautiful, you know, relationship right. develops. But like, what, I, what I'm trying to say is we, we've all been in those situations where you have an impulse and it's not the right impulse and you know it. It's not the right thing to jump from the cliff. That's not, I'm, I'm in no way, shape or form saying you should follow every impulse. But there are definitely prompts, inspirations, impulses that you receive from light that are telling you to do the right thing. And, and it's not always clean up your room or pay your taxes. In some cases, especially when society goes bad, a la 2020, the year 2020, I mean... <laughs> When society goes corrupt, the great people come out and exercise civil disobedience, and it appears to be inconsistent with what what would be appropriate for the you know appropriate behavior in society or or le- appropriate legal behavior. When moral behavior becomes contradictory to legal behavior, that presents an interesting point in society, in history, in the hero's journey. That. In fact, m- many of the great stories are about that very thing when moral behavior contradicts legal legal behavior. That right. was one of the issues with the life of Christ. The guy keeps healing people on the Sabbath. Well, he's breaking the freaking law. Let's crucify him. He's right. healing people on the Sabbath, for heaven's sakes. The man s- took his mask off at church and smiled at someone. <laughs> oh! Right. I mean, the the pastor shouted the Gestapo out of his church and then they came back and arrested him on the highway that can we skip today without mentioning this guy uh art what's his name arthur up in it's in um Canada. Al- uh, calgary i believe and we've mentioned him before i think we linked to a video of him this pastor throwing the health gestapo the health director and or the health department and some cops out of his out of his church and it's pretty dramatic well He's had a couple other run-ins, as I understand it, and finally they got their man. They they swatted him. They pulled this guy over on the highway with a, a massive cadre of. I don't know where the video officers. came from. I don't know if that's body cam footage or a, a, a bystander, but he's being dragged along the highway 
um, you know, handcuffed. With Yelling out words like Nazi Gestapo, right. not, not making it easy for him. And he had a... He, he a, knew it was coming. There's a video that starts with, uh, starts out with him saying, if you're watching this, then I've been arrested. So he, he had made a video and he's asking for help. And, but um, the, his crime was to, uh, in, to hold worship services. And they, their their reason for arresting him was inciting people to gather in groups larger than than they wanted or something right. like that. But it, technically, it was inciting people to attend church. That's why this man was arrested. And, and the worst part about it, in my opinion, isn't that the government's doing this, because we expect the government to degenerate pretty quickly in situations like that. The worst part is the number of people cheering it on and saying, he broke the law. He healed people on the Sabbath. Crucify him. Yeah, this, that's what's crazy right now is that it is so frankly absurd that we claim to be this great society founded upon religious freedom, and we're allowing that type of thing to go on in our midst. We're allowing the government to shut down churches. That's, that's the— And even that's the, encouraging it. Yeah, that's the paradox. That's the, the cognitive dissonance, the strange reality is there, there is a huge segment of our— of our population that is so scared that they're they're willing to go along with that obvious ah obvious what is what is a more what's a more better word <laughs> what's a better word than obvious i mean stark yeah it's 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 remarkable how how far brazen. we've gone i i i'm lost for words here this the the uh the paradox here, the irony, the uh, the contradiction, and w- the hypocrisy is so astronomical. There are not words to describe how ridiculous it is that we we claim to be a free people, we claim to be a moral people, and yet we, at the drop of a hat, an invisible enemy that might kill 0.01% of our population— <laughs> an invisible enemy that's we're willing to to, to take the rights from everybody forever yeah it's the coronavirus it's the common cold we're willing to do these things to each other and allow the the iron fist of the state to oppress a churchman like that a, a very a, a very bold courageous churchman yeah and who came from Poland, who the reason he's fighting is because he says, I saw this in Poland right. before I, the Berlin I, Wall uh, fell. Yeah, I, I, I recognize this. the Soviet. I recognize it. Well, and, uh, you know, people are saying, oh, it's just one guy and he broke the law. He broke the rules. He didn't break the law. He broke rules. And there's a difference there. But we're also allowing us to become completely, completely intellectually and spiritually ran over to to get to the point where we celebrate what you know pastors getting arrested you know to get to that point we had to get to a point where we also are willing to stay in our homes and shut everything down and give the the government this sort of power and authority and and credibility they have no credibility left the numbers I mean, we're we're more than a year into this. The numbers all say we made a can, mistake. We made a life. mistake. We made a mistake. We made a mistake. We made a mistake. And most of the excess deaths, in my expert opinion, having studied it extensively, the the statistical data from the CDC, the deaths were caused by the state, the lockdowns, uh, denying people medical care, causing 
uh, locking people in nursing homes was half of the deaths. Right. Locking people in nursing, like New Jersey and New York, shame on you. You killed off a bunch of old people. And, you know, there... It doesn't matter if coronavirus is was created in a in a lab in Wuhan. It pro- probably was. There's strange. There's a few strange symptoms, like the the loss of sense of taste and smell. But it doesn't matter. It does not matter. We don't give up our rights. Uh, Bobby and I were texting back and forth about some of the other crises that seem to be popping up. Like there was a Twitter poll we mentioned last time, and you've got to send me that link so I can post it on the on the website. But the idea is what's the next crisis they're going to bring up. I don't think that polls live anymore, but <laughs> some those, of the th- those are only usually stay open for a few hours. Well, some of the things but... we post also get, get deleted. They get right. censored. But the, the thing I was going to say is that, um, what was the thing I was going to say? Coming crisis. There is no freedom that we ought to enjoy or have enjoyed or do enjoy or should enjoy for which the oligarchy cannot, will not, is not willing to create a crisis specifically designed to take that freedom. Let me say that more simply. There is no freedom we have that they won't attempt to take away via crisis. They will invent a crisis for every single freedom they want to take. It's always by crisis. There's always going to be some reason. Think of the children. Think of the children. We, you know, sir... We can't have you wearing a beard because think of the children. Right. Sir, we can't have you wearing that silly shirt or not or not wearing a shirt because think of the children. Sir, we we can't allow you to drive that loud car or you know, we can't allow you to put that thing on your lawn because think of the children. Think of how many freedoms we have lost because of the think of the children argument. Well, they're not thinking of the children anymore. The children are ritually being sacrificed. Yeah. In the last year or so. In some Although, cases, literally, um, children are dying because supply chains and charitable organizations and things like that have been shut down because of the virus. And you have hundreds of thousands of kids all over the world starving to death. But think of the children. But think of the children. Anyway, well, I, I digress here. We We were talking about the hero. We're talking about Stranger Than Fiction. I think it's... This is significant. Harold Crick changes. He moves from the Babylon world, the one that has his 401k, the one that makes sure that he has all his tax forms filed, the one where nothing is out of place, the one where he enriches those above him and those below him enrich him. He moves out of that world to one where he finds love and fulfillment and, he, and the reason that he does is because he's confronted with his own mortality. He right. recognizes a glitch in the matrix. He recognizes that things are not the way he thought. He recognizes divinity, right? And he goes through this classic cycle, which, again, I'm going to post some of these... Uh, some of these graphics, but, you know, he's in the ordinary world. He has a call to adventure. He has a meeting with the spirit or something some sort of a of an awakening and that puts him on a road of trials and so it it puts him into this uh, first threshold where he goes into this extraordinary world where he sacrifices right uh in some cases they call this the magic flight and refuse to return and 
well, actually, sorry, I got that backwards. They call that getting supernatural aid and uh, crossing the first threshold and then entering the belly of the whale. There, that's making reference to the Jonah story. Mm-hmm. The, that then puts him in touch with the goddess or the, the divinity. Well, along the way, the supernatural aid, you, you could say that was him hearing the narrator, but you can also say that was him meeting with Professor Hilbert, because that, that mentor is often considered the supernatural aid. So th- this, this whole idea of the monomyth or the, cult, the, the hero's journey, it's not, it's not perfect. It's, it, Campbell has done his best to try and show syncretous elements of how this shows up in all the great stories well, in, my- in the ancient world. And it often shows up in the great, great literature of the, the modern world, it's, but it's not, it's not exactly related. But you see the big, broad brushstrokes happening and, uh, in and the these, great stories. These graphics, the, these graphics are great for understanding the hero's journey, these different you know, um, circles and things. But the hero's journey isn't always just a step-by-step-by-step step by step thing like these are drawn out. A lot of it just happens, they're all mishmashed together. They happen simultaneously. They happen out of order. It doesn't always have to follow step one. Yeah, and we're not talking about... Step three. uh, You could be talking about writing a script or a screenplay right here, but we're talking about people's lives, right? Are we not, Bobby? I mean, that's what we're talking about is your life. Your life will have these elements, but it won't necessarily be in this order. But when when your life has changed, like, like there may come a point in your life where you look back on your past self and you go, oh, you know, my past self wouldn't like my new self very much. That is evidence... (laughs) of what we've talked about in the past, metanoia, of repentance, of metamorphosis, of changing your mind or expanding your mind. When you look back and you go, wow, I've really changed, you might be on the hero's journey if you, if you can see that. If, but if your life is ultra-structured and you go, you know, you're still counting the steps to the bus and counting the, the number of brush strokes you've made brushing your teeth... That's a funny point in the movie, right? When he st- he realizes he's counting his brush strokes, and he stops and he starts to, he starts to like brush his teeth in this really erratic wild erratic pattern. pattern. Yeah, erratic's a good word. There's a I'm looking at a draft of the script, another one I found, and I don't think this line is in the movie, but it's when it's after Harold reads the book and he goes and gives the manuscript back to the author, and. He says, and and this is in the movie, he says, I read it and I loved it. And there's only one way it can end. It ends with me dying. I mean, I don't have much background in literary anything, but this seems simple enough. And then this part, I don't think this is in the movie. He says, it's my fate. I can't escape it. You can't escape it either. As much as I want to believe that you or I or Professor Hilbert can control when and where I die or when and where I fall in love or even when and where my watch goes on the fritz, it's just not the truth. All I know is that a series of events has been set into motion that none of us are able to do anything about, and so we all have to learn to accept it and move on with our lives for however long they last. You're right. That's not in, I don't think that's in the movie. It's, it, I think that was a good cut from a, from a storytelling standpoint. That is, that's Harold knowing too much right there. That's Harold understanding too much at that point. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the the crux of all of this, though, is that we can't control all of these things. We think we can, but we have to go on and live our lives for however long they last. And then this line, his next line is in the movie. He says, I love your book, 
and I think you should finish it. Mm -hmm. But see, th this is the scenes in this, you know, this is where Harold comes to terms with his own mortality. After meeting with the professor and the author and kind of, he goes on this, he, he, he just kind of decides like, this is, this is my life. There's a great line where he's arguing, you know, he's bargaining with the professor and he says, I, I just can't die right now. It's just, it's just, it's really bad timing. Well, yeah. And he goes on to say, look, I could change. I can do. Right. I can, I can be different. I can, I don't have to live this boring life. And yeah. I found that interesting because Harold's change was already in progress, but Harold's also, he's, he's blaming himself. Like, like it's something he's doing, not that he's being controlled by an author who ultimately his fate is in the hands of this author. She could change it. And ultimately she does. But the author goes through this, you know, she goes through this struggle too. Like she's realizing that my right. books are killing people. Right. And this is, this is the, yeah, that, that's interesting. She thinks about how many people she's killed, she's, but that, that's an interesting aside. How many people do you think aside. I've killed? And, and her assistant's like, I, I don't know. They're fictional. Eight. I killed eight <laughs> killed people. Eight people. <laughs> I killed a school teacher the day before summer, summer vacation. How cruel was that? You know, and, <laughs> and of course we don't have, we never know if those people were real too, but no. there's, it's implied. Well, anyway, she changed, she changes the ending and this is, this is my, the second really important scene. And I, I think this is a good time to talk about it. She comes back and she brings a copy to the, to professor Hilbert and he's kind of like, well, I, well, he's, I think there's something we got to do before that. Okay. So she sits down. And she writes the book. She writes the ending. And it's a really great scene. So she's at the typewriter, and you have Harold going about his day, and you have the professor. The narrator you is have this, narrating. Yeah, you hear her voice, and you have the professor going about his day, and Harold, Harold walks out to the bus stop. And there's a kid on a bicycle. The kid crashes his bicycle and stumbles into the street. Harold steps out, grabs the kid, throws him back towards the sidewalk and the bus hits Harold and kills him. And when this happens, you have the author, she's writing it. You have Jules, the professor looks out his window. He hears sirens. They all understand what, that it's been, it's in, it's been put in motion and it's happening and there's emotion. The author slams a table down. She lights a cigarette you know, frantically, yeah, she's, very nervously. she's done this thing and she can't believe she's done it. And you see a, you see her picture, uh, you see a, the, you see her page and it says Harold Crick was D E. And then the cursor, not the cursor. She's typing on a typewriter, yeah. but the, the head or whatever they call it is. So she hasn't written the word dead, but Harold's been hit by the bus. And the scene is really powerful because the people, all the people who know, you see their reactions. You know, the baker, uh, Anna, doesn't know, but she... she Senses kinda, a disturbance she, in the force. Yeah, she looks out the window <laughs> or whatever, and she can hear sirens, yeah. right? And, and you know, peep, the bus driver's on the phone. You know, someone says, call your supervisor right away. And it's, you know, and, and he's on the, he's laying on the street mangled. And, you know, his, his arm's broken and his, his, there's blood and... And you're thinking, oh, he's dead. They really did it. And this is what you were talking about earlier, how... They could have ended they, it they, with they this. They chickened out. I don't know if they chickened out. 
I think I they think, they wanted to make a comedy. I think audiences would have left really really disappointed had they left him dead. Well, it depended on how it depended on what they wanted to say. And I'm I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done this cuz the way they ended it this this interchange between uh Karen Eiffel the author and Jules Hilbert the professor is very very significant and it depending on how you want to take it I think it's but it, the whole feeling of the movie changes right then. And it's kind right. of like, huh, okay. Well, and, she comes to the professor in the audience. We still aren't, we still think he's dead when she comes to Jules. Right. They could have killed him off. Right. And she hands Jules the new ending. And that's where I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I mean, I, you, I think it's you, good to You've definitely the, spoiled the ending for anyone that was going to. Hey, this movie's 15 years I old. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> we gave him we gave, you, we gave guys, you a fair warning we gave you spoiler warnings this audio recording is pausable you could have paused it and gone and watched the yes movie. <laughs> it's not my fault you didn't do that but but also <laughs> it's a great movie i i hope you watch it and and kind of consider the the elements of the human journey that are in it because that's that's the issue that's what that's the whole point of the mind virus podcast is to help us to realize what we're doing here and it's hard like if you're if you're living the irs auditor life which a lot of us are in a way and i'm not saying you shouldn't save for retirement i'm not saying you shouldn't try to live a consistent life but at what cost right is it at the cost of your of the mission you were supposed to perform in this world or is it at the cost of your immortal soul you know why do we do the things we do and why do we not do other things we think we ought to do? Why do we live lives that are mediocre instead of lives of excellence? Why, well, why do we not spend the time in the best books and we watch the television programming? Why, why do we not get out and talk to the neighbor, but we sit and watch TikTok or Instagram or whatever? Why, 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 why? If, 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 a thousand times if. But in the end, it's the deeds of a man and, the not, and not the words of a prophecy that shape his destiny. So what, what is our destiny? Do we, do we even think about that stuff? Anyway. Me- mediocre is comfortable. Mediocre is great. Medi- especially when you live in a mediocre... Um, modern world in america i mean where are the poor there are no poor you have to want to be poor you have to want to be homeless you 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 don't have to do very much to have all of the excesses that we've come to expect you know granted if you want to be rich and have the excess excesses yeah that then you've got to work and become an influencer or make a lot of money or whatever but but we live like the kings of old for sure even the poorest among us live like the kings of old. Right. And so w- one, of the, one of the things to remember is that whether we like it or not, the script changes. That's what appears to be happening to the world right now. There, and, and this might be an invitation to talk in the, you know, after we discuss the, this final scene about Alex Jones's documentary Endgame and the eugenics agenda that has been rebranded as sustainability and right. climate uh climate science climate change propaganda 
I, I wasn't giving Bobby enough credit on some of the climate concerns he, or the, the propaganda concerns he had related to climate when we've talked in the past. But anyway, getting back to this scene, this is, this is great. This, the, the fact that they included this scene does redeem the way that it was ended because it could have been this great sacrifice and maybe they could have figured out a good way to end it. But, the, but she discusses with Hilbert, uh, Karen Eiffel, the author, discusses with Professor Hilbert the new ending. She comes in and... Um, yeah, she goes to his office. She, she, she comes and in and, and he says... He kind of says, you, so you finished it, huh? You, both, being, both knowing that finishing it means so you, so you killed him off. Well, she well first she introduces herself and says, "I think we have a mutual acquaintance." Yeah, and they both kind of admit that we like Harold. You know, they it's kind of said without words, and and I think they both realize at that moment, like maybe killing this man isn't the best idea. Well, the script is kind of is kind of convoluted if you're just reading the script because they keep going back and forth between the hospital scene. Well, she and, says, I think you'd be author. interested in the new ending, and it cuts to the hospital where Harold Crick is bandaged up and has a cast on every limb Right, his H- head. H- Hilbert says, why did you change the book? Have so you read it? No. Why did you change the book? Lots of reasons. Well, I realized I just couldn't do it. And he says, well, because he's real? And she says, no, because it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of a man you would want to keep alive? Yeah, and that's a that's great, the great That's, that's great the great line. line of the movie, I think. Isn't that the type of man you'd want to keep alive? Because when we're talking about the hero's journey, arriving at the point of apotheosis in the cycle where the man confronts his death, confronts the Dark Lord, confronts his ultimate demise. Little did he know that those, the series of events would put him in touch with the, the ultimate evil, which is what death is. That's the only thing. There's two things that, that the devil has on us here. He has the fear of death, well, fear of pain, a painful death, you know, right? And the loss of memory. Those are the, th- the blows of death. Those are the things that, w- that they have, the bad guys have on us here. They have us afraid of our own mortality, when in reality, death is the threshold allowing us to move into the other world, it, back into the real world even. And I'm not saying we should take ourselves out of it because we all come down into death this is that which is this world. This right. is the death world. We all come here to perform certain functions, to perform a role, to be tested, to have an experience that proves us, proves our worth, and and either opposes or furthers the agenda and the um the efforts of the gods of light or works for the other team. And that, that I could I could sit here and I, I know we have a predominantly Mormon audience. I think I could find five or six scriptures in the Book of Mormon that show you that this is the death world. They literally, like in Helaman chapter 14, this Samuel the Lamanite refers to this as the first death. Being separated from God is the right. first, first death. And there's reference made to how Adam and Eve, when they came here, they were miserable. 
having died, having become separated from God. And, and it doesn't make any sense unless you realize that when you cross over from that heavenly world down into this world, you're in the death world. You've died. You've died the first death. But we're alive. We're incarnate, right? It, do, it doesn't make sense unless you, unless you have a different perspective on the cosmos than that which was taught in primary or seminary or whatever through the plan of salvation drawing. That's another one. We've, I think we've talked about that before, how inadequate the sal- plan of salvation drawing is, but w- maybe we'll dissect that a little bit later. Anyway, getting through the hero's journey here, you cross into this, this new world, you're making sacrifices, you're having trials, you're meeting with the divinity, especially the div- divine feminine, you're fighting the, the evil, and you then go through a process of divination, a process of apotheosis, and then you come back to the other world being the master of both domains. And that's, I think, where the Will, the Will Ferrell, Harold Crick character ends up. He is now master of both domains. He's, he's in the hospital. He's battled, battered and bruised because of his journey, but he's overcome death, and he has the, the sacred union with Anna, and he's encountered the Divine Mother, which is the author, and he can now go back to his life. But what is his life? His life is now irrevo- irrevocably changed. Can he be, still be an IRS auditor? Possibly. That, that, little, that little, it doesn't tell us where he's going to go, but he is the master of both domains. But that little um, exchange between him and Anna in bed where he says, I have something to tell you. <laughs> you can deduct all the, all the food that you've given away. And, and he's like... He's doing it within the law. You know, he's now using he's now using the system against itself. Right. Which which is sort of beautiful in a way because it's like, hey, yeah, you you can coexist here and and you know, see, I want I want to make the world a better place too by by making you by reconciling you with what the doctrine and Keeping covenants you out of jail. What with what the doctrine and covenants would call making friends with the unrighteous mammon. Have you seen that? Have you ever wondered about that in the in the Doctrine right, and Covenants. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, I kind of went on a long rant there, but I think it's, it's amazing that, I'll, I'll repeat that little segment here. It's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die, and then he dies. But if the man does know he's going to die, and dies anyway, and dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? And, right. and we're talking about eternal life. We're talking about raising that man out of the death world, saving them from the ultimate destruction, the second death, and putting them back on their path of progression. Isn't that the type of man that you want to keep alive? Yes, the answer is yes. The answer to the question she poses is, of course, yes. And so therefore, it being a comedy, he gets, he gets hitched and doesn't die, <laughs> fulfilling the prophetic words of the great... Obi-Wan Kenobi mentor character, Professor Hil- Hilbert. Yeah, the, in this scene with uh, Hilbert and the author, um, when she says that, it's funny. She says, you know, I, you might be interested in this new ending. And he reads it and he says, he says, uh, it's, it's okay. And, she, and then she says, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. No, 
he says, no, but it's okay. It's not bad. Not the most amazing piece of American literature in several years, but it's okay. <laughs> and she says, you know, I think I'm fine with okay. It doesn't make sense with the rest of the book, though. She says, no, not yet. I'll rewrite the rest. My assistant said she'd go back to the publisher and request more time, which is something that the assistant kind of paraded as, I've never had to go back and ask for more time, but everybody's changing around this uh, when they re you know realize that Harold Crick is a real person. And then he says, why did you change it? And that's when she says the line, you know, it's a book about a man. And it's a great line. And and in this copy of the script, I think this is a draft, then they go on to ask each other out on a date. And, and oh, really? <laughs> so they, they cut that little subplot out, which makes sense. But um, but then, you know, the movie ends with, with Harold starting to heal and, and Anna giving feeding him cookies while he's in, you know, in the hospital bed. He's got a great hospital room, by the way, overlooks the city with this giant wall to wall window. Like, how do yeah. you get that hospital room? Yeah. But, uh, you know, and then, and then it, uh, you know, ends with with, uh, you know, on a high note with everybody kind of everybody that we meet in the story kind of having a, a good satisfying ending. Well, it's typical of like the Greek uh, comedies where they would do a thing they called Deus Ex Machina, which is Latin for God coming out of the machine or God, the God machine, mm -hmm. where the gods just come in and save people. They get uh, Mid Midsummer Night's Dream is like this. The whole thing gets screwed up, effed up. It's all the, the, the plot. It's like a sitcom. Everything's going right. wrong that can go wrong. But then the gods come in and fix it. It happens in like every action movie ever, and it's it can be kind of lazy. But if it's done well, it can be interesting and and you know a good storytelling technique. But um, sometimes it's too easy for just something to come streaking out of the sky and swoop you away. This like Superman suffers from that a lot. Mm. People are stuck in a <laughs> predicament, and he literally comes out of the heavens and just swoops them away. And but. This is a good film. This is a. It, it, I really liked it. I was glad you recommended it. Go the other watch day. it. Um, it's on Netflix. Yeah. If you happen to have Netflix, which most people do. Oh, and one one detail we have to we can't overlook is that what what saved Harold Crick from from dying was that his watch broke when he was hit by the bus, and part of it went into his wrist and basically acted as a a stop from him bleeding to death. And the the doctor, which says, is a little silly, right? But you know the whole thing. It's Deus Ex Machina. The the doctor says, you know, that was a pretty brave thing you did running in front of that bus. Pretty stupid, but pretty brave too. And and he says, uh, let me just read the line because it's 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 worth reading. But um, you know, the doctor is kind of this matter of fact. It's a funny another. Every character in this in this movie is kind of quirky in their own little way. But um, the doctor says, <clears throat> so he says, stepping in front of that bus, pretty brave. Kind of stupid, but pretty brave. And Harold says, yeah, uh, is that boy okay? He's just fine. Yep, a little scratched up. Am I okay? Well, you're not dead. And of course, that's significant. <laughs> that's the whole point, yeah. On the other hand, looks like you cracked your head, broke three bones in your leg and foot, suffered four broken ribs, fractured your right arm, and you severed an artery in your left arm, which an artery in your left arm, which could have been really bad, but amazingly, a shard of metal from your watch became lodged in the artery, causing your heart rate to slow, keeping your loss of blood down enough to keep you alive, which is pretty cool. 
<laughs> and then the doctor says, with some physical therapy and a few months of rest, you should be fine. Well, sort of. We couldn't remove the shard of watch without risking major muscular damage. It'll be okay. You'll just have a watch piece embedded in your arm for the rest of your life. And so the watch, which... Has uh, now become a part it, of Crick. And the watch saved his life. Mm-hmm. And the watch was sort of the thing that set this all into motion. Now, the watch is an interesting element to this film because they don't develop it a whole lot. But the watch is basically sentient in a way. It it beeps uh, excitedly when when Anna Crick is going to get on the bus, you know, and it it fritzes out when he needs to reset it. So he resets it to be on, you know, early for the bus rather than on time. And they never, that's never really explained, but it's a little bit of the supernatural again. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, it's a head. I think it's a hat tip to this idea that this is a novel and the, the author can create whatever universe she wants. And so if it's a universe where the watch has some sentient cognitive abilities (laughs) and it will end up saving him. Then that's the universe that she's created. It just happens that it overlaps with our own. And there is supernatural elements in our own universe. And we've talked about that before. You know, you could probably search newspapers and things and find all kinds of stories where somebody was in a car accident or something and some crazy coincidence or some, you know, off the charts, low chance thing saved them like they you know sometimes people call these things synchronicities yeah you you, uh, we've heard stories cosmic coincidences there's there's stories where you know the doctor will say something like had the blade passed you know one one millimeter to the left left, the bullet right the bullet hadn't made a right turn right here (laughs) right i've got a friend who has a bullet lodged in his fanny because of a shooting accident you know they were mishandling guns and and it basically went in here made a u-turn and ended up over in the fat part of the cheek didn't come out could have blown a lot of really important things apart in there but they they just made an interesting path and he's like well it's god (laughs) i don't know what it was you know maybe it was a narrator maybe it was the narrator yeah yeah and i think the point here in this movie is you know the the larger point is that that our lives aren't predetermined we're not being controlled by an author narrating our lives. Well, there's now, an element of destiny, but there's, there's destiny, also but we, there's the element of choice. We create that. We, you know, there's lots of stories about people. You know, um, Gattaca is another one where he's supposed to. He's not supposed to be able to compete with the genetic, genetically enhanced perfect people. people. Yeah. And he does so by just sheer force of will and throwing caution to the wind in a lot of cases right and you know our our lives aren't predetermined yeah there's some destiny that we could fulfill you know star wars likes to talk about that there's i would call it potential or there's things that there's there's in, in mormon theology or mormon culture we talk about you know being preordained to certain foreordination we don't we don't like to talk about predestination right is that a calvinist thing um i can't remember but the lord god jesus was predestined and foreordained to do what he did it was his destiny to do it he did it does that mean that the events couldn't have been different I think that's a good question, but I believe that the heavenly hosts knew. They sang for joy. They rejoiced 
they recognized what was happening. They saw the script playing out and the, and the son of God, the great God, Jesus Christ, whatever you want to call him, the only begotten, he came down and fulfilled his destiny, but he had to do it. It's, it's a very, it's very much a space-time continuum paradox, right? It's a, it's a, an enigmatic topic to say the least, I think. He had the advantage of knowing what his what his mission well, it was. Says we, we don't always we, have we've that. been given yeah we've been given loss of memory and we've we lack uh we've been given trials and and deficiencies he was given the spirit without measure which and he was of course or is the great only begotten son of god so he, he had a different role than the rest of us but but i do think that there are many many that have played out their destiny that they came well, to perform specific missions Absolutely. And, and that's where in the movie, Crick becomes a Christ-like character. He, he saves the boy from imminent death, but he saves the people around him. He, 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 keeps, you know, he makes the world a better place by keeping Anna out of jail, but also bringing great joy into her life. He changes and saves the professor from his sort of professional malaise and boring life. And he saves the author from her... neuroses and her you know inability to write and so he's sort of this he's sort of a a christ character or savior character he has an effect on everyone yeah and of course he he dies and is raised from the dead to live you know to go on and live a better more exalted life afterward yeah assuming you know uh, you know, we're told basically it's told not in these words, but they're told we're told they live happily ever after, kind of. Mm-hmm. Well, what, one comment I want to make about relative to the hero's journey and relative to our lives is this: that the myth, the the myth, as Hunibly explained, was always to explain ritual back in the ancient world. The idea of the myths was to explain why they did certain rituals, and the rituals were performed to demonstrate a uh, coordination or a uh, synchronization of the earth with the heavens. It was to demonstrate that the earth saw the pattern of the heavens and understood the the reality of what was going on in the heavens. And there, from that, you get the hermetic dictum, as above, so below. But we... As we need to be careful. We, we can see in our lives, I think, elements of the hero's journey, and you, you'll see the microcosmic aspect of this play out. Oh, you uh, cut out there for a second. Sorry. You're back, though. Okay. Well, I think that we need to be careful because in our lives, we, what we'll see is we'll see this cycle play out in small ways, in a, in a microcosmic type of a manner, and maybe relative to you know certain phases of our life or certain trials that we face in our life we might see this sort of cycle play out but i think it it's unusual that you would see the whole thing play out in a really distinct manner in a person's life because the the cycle relates to one's cosmic existence there's there's a journey that your intelligence your soul must take through all the eons of your existence and you don't become a true christ figure until you're at the end right 
at the start, you may be focusing on just trying to take up the call to adventure. There, there, are, there are individuals in this world here that have come from all different levels of light or glory in the world prior to this, in the worlds previous to this. And they're all in different places. And they're perhaps the big issue, the big inflection point in their life is going to be different. Everybody's got some different thing they're dealing with, some different missions, some different goals, some different major tests, maybe many multiple major battles to win. But the patterns, the patterns will play out, but it's not all to be comprehended in this world. I'm quoting Joseph Smith. He says, it will be a great while after we pass beyond the veil before we learn our exaltation. And I think that's important because if you are trying to get in touch with God and it's not happening the way you think it should happen, you need to realize part of the metamorphosis is turning yourself over to God and gods or God to instruct you and bring you along based on where you're at in the journey, based on what you're supposed to be doing. So, so one of the most significant things we can do is to try and get in touch with God, with the Lord Jesus, and find out what it is we're supposed to do for him, rather than us asking, you know, telling the Lord what we want I think one of the great things we can do is, is say, hey, what am I supposed to be doing here? What, what is it that you want me to do? What is the most beneficial for my progression and for your eternal purposes to be fulfilled? That's a hard place to be because then you really are turning your, your will over to God and the, out, the outcome is, is very much uncertain. If, if the prayer is, God, help me to save for retirement so that my 401k will last long enough to pay for the... Um, my end of life care, you know, when I'm 85 years old or whatever. But that's that seems to be what a lot of us are working for, and it it seems to be a little bit of a dull, you know, not not very heroic of an ending. But if we if we say to the heavens, make us a polished shaft in your quiver, make us a tool in your hands, you know help us to perform the functions we were supposed cosmically supposed to perform when we were here and recognize that our existence transcends this mortal finite sphere then i think we can we can have a lot more fun we can be a lot less anxious about you know how it all plays out it doesn't have to play out according to the pattern that a lot of the institutions have set up for us your financial planner or perhaps your your church group, if it's got some pharisaical leanings <laughs> towards law, law and and rigid, you know, rigid items that you're supposed to check off of a list, you know, turn it over to God. What is it that God wants? What is what is it that is going to be of the most worth for your eternal journey? That is that is a difficult place to to find yourself. I mean. It's, a, it's hard to sincerely say that that's what you want when it's so easy to say, Lord, I really want, uh, you know, I really want a really fast car. I want, I want the, the latest Dodge Charger Hellcat, whatever, you know? Right. How can I get that? Help me get that, God. Help, help me get that thing that I want or get to overcome. I know God has really helped me in, in a lot of ways in my life. I, I, I must admit 
just openly that I believe deeply in the Lord. And it doesn't mean, and in, in God and the gods, as we've discussed, it doesn't mean that I don't have my own faith crises. You know, it doesn't mean that I don't have my own moments of doubt or whatever or confusion. But I can honestly say that it's, that it's difficult to honestly pray. I, I believe it's difficult, you know, to really go before God and pray honestly because we tend, we tend to be kind of insincere. To, to, to pray the prayer honestly, Lord, thy will be done and not mine, I think that's a high bar. You have to ask yourself, if you say that to the Lord, or Lord, what is it that you really want, what is it that you want me to do? Help me to move away my will and, and figure out what I'm supposed to do and what you want me to do. I think that's a, that's a difficult prayer to, to pray. And I'm reminded of uh, Mark Twain, where he says, you can't pray a lie. The, uh, that quote is eternal scripture from, from Huckleberry Finn. And I, I think it's worth repeating here on the podcast, if I can get it to load up. He says, uh, th- this is uh, Huck Finn, he was... He was thinking about turning in um, Jim, the slave, right? The runaway slave. And he he knew he he was supposed, the right thing to do was to turn him in. And he says, I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing. See, he was was talking about talking to God. I was trying to make my, my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing and go Negro's owner, by the way, they use the N-word in the actual text there, so I've changed it, was going to go and write to the slave's owner and tell where he was, but deep down in me, I knowed it was a lie, and he knowed it, meaning God. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. I mean, the great thing about Huck Finn is he's sincere. (laughs) He's not going to say something to God that he doesn't believe, because he knows God knows it. Well, don't we find ourselves in that position all the time when we're talking to God? Well, Bobby informs me that perhaps my mic wasn't working perfectly during that last monologue that I went through, but hopefully most of that comes through. We're going to go ahead and wrap up today, and we'll, we'll get to some of the other interesting topics in a future podcast and leave some of those tangents un, unreconnected. <laughs> right. I think, um, I think the take home today is that, that regardless of where you're at in your life, um, you, can, you can make changes that improve the, not only your own life, but the life of those around you. And these don't have to be major changes. You know, Harold Crick doesn't make huge changes in his life. He just starts being a little more spontaneous and he, he, you know, gets out of his comfort zone. And I think if we can all find ways to, <clears throat> we can all find ways to do that. Um, the movie ends and, uh, with some narration, at, you know, as it begins narration from the author and, uh, in the movie, uh, Harold's in the hospital bed and, and Anna's giving him a, a cookie and cookies are significant in their relationship, but I, I won't spoil that part for you. I mean, I, maybe I just did, but 
the the cookie has some meaning there. This movie's worth watching. We we spoiled the ending, but we didn't spoil the movie. And I had, I had seen it years before, but forgotten some of the details. But and I think the real beauty in this film is in the details. But um, Anna's giving Harold a, a cookie while he's, you know, laid up in the hospital bed, and the narrator says, "As Harold took a bite of Bavarian sugar cookie, he finally felt." as if everything was going to be okay. Sometimes when we lose ourselves in fear and despair, in routine, in constancy, in hopelessness and tragedy, there are Bavarian sugar cookies. And fortunately, when there aren't any cookies, we can still find reassurance in a familiar hand on our skin, or a kind and loving gesture, or a subtle or subtle encouragement, or a loving embrace, or an offer of comfort, not to mention hospital gurneys, and nose plugs, and uneaten Danish, and soft-spoken secrets, and Fender Stratocasters, and maybe the occasional piece of fiction. <clears throat> and, re- and, we re- and we must remember that all these things, the nuances, the anomalies, the subtleties, which we assume only accessorize our days, are in fact here for a much larger and nobler cause. They are here to save our lives. I know the idea seems strange, but I also know that it just so happens to be true. And so it was, a wristwatch saved Harold Crick. So I think that the little things in our lives, the details, are what make life worth living. It's... it's um, Often those details, those little moments are what we remember. We don't really care about our numbers at work or how much money we might have made or could have made. When we look back, we remember the little moments and little things that that made something special. And I think it's worth noting that those are the types of things that were taken away from us over the last year or so, these human interactions, and are continued to be taken away from us from evil conspiring people that want to strip us of our humanity. And the best way we can fight against that is to not let them do that, to smile at people, shake hands, open the door for a stranger. Uh, and Show your face in yeah, public. Yeah, yeah, smile. We can never forget that our governments tried to make smiling in public an act of aggression. Like Reclaim these little moments in our lives. Right. Make make sure not to allow the tyranny to stand. You know, tell people that it's absurd if they're continuing the charade. I, th- I think that's okay. I think that's okay to say, look, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm done with the charade. I'm done with, practice a few trite one-liners. Really? You're kidding me? It's over. You know. Or if you don't want to say anything, just smile and walk away. Yep. A smile is a, is a powerful gesture. And uh, we need more of those in our, in our general lives, in our general public. But also remember, you're part of a story. You're part of your own story. This is a theme we come back to over and over on this show. And you're part of your own story. You're the hero in your own hero's journey. And uh, figure out what kind of story you, you're in. Are, Are you, you in a tragedy a, or a comedy? <laughs> remember, in the tragedy, the hero dies. In the comedy, you're going to get hitched. Um, but no, figure out. And, and, and of course, real life is probably an absurd, tragic comedy when you really think about it. But find the good in, in all of the things that we 
that we do, find the good in the hard times. And usually that comes from other people and rallying together with, with your people, with the people in your, you know, the cast members and the characters in your story. And remember, you're not controlled by the narrator. You can, you can determine how your story ends. And so I hope you have a great story and a great ending. Now go watch, go watch Stranger Than Fiction and then uh, go out in public and smile at people. It's the deeds of a man and not the words of a prophecy that are what shape his destiny. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is uh, Bobby Flood. And Jordan Bruno. If I, if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Good night.